everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And I have another treat for you guys this week. I have Jessica with me. Jessica is a nurse who is on YouTube. She's got a lot of hysterical videos that you guys, I'm sure, are familiar with. If you're not, you need to go find them, look them up, because I know you guys love that funny stuff. So, hey, Jessica, say hi to everybody. Hello, everybody. I'm really excited to be here. I'm a talker, so a uh, podcast is right up my alley too, so. Perfect. Oh, it's, your personality is just got such a big personality. You're, <laughs> I mean, you're just gorgeous, so you're perfect for YouTube. And I mean, you're just... It's just like you're, you guys, when you go look at her videos, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. Like, they're so funny. They're just so animated and it's just hysterical. Stop, I bet you're just stop, an absolute. Stop, I mean, tell I me more, but stop. <laughs> you're like, stop, please go ahead. <laughs> I mean, serious. I'm not just gassing you up. I'm serious. Like, they're really funny. You probably are an absolute hoot to work with. That's what I keep thinking whenever I watch. Um, that I am. I'm a, a little bit of a jokester and I like to have fun. And sometimes, you know, management so much uh, likes me to tone it down a bit, but um, it's it's a little bit hard to do that because I think everybody needs to cut up a little bit and have fun while they're at work or we, we lose our minds. And you're, are you labor and delivery? Yes. Labor and delivery, 20 years. I'm actually working part-time now. Yay. So that's why I've had a little bit more time to be able to focus on some of the social media stuff, which is cool. Well, it's really exciting to have you on. I was so, I reached out to you to see if you would be nice enough to come on to my podcast because I'm trying to treat my my listeners. We're about to hit 500,000 downloads and I'm so thankful for everyone for listening. They're so, my, the listeners are so, I don't know how, you, what your experience has been on YouTube, but people that listen to this podcast are the most freaking encouraging, amazing, supportive people. Like, Mm-hmm. Well, tell everybody where they can find you, Jessica. I would say I'm I'm most active in Facebook. Um, I I I have a page. It's called Nurse Jessica Sites, and I post all of my videos. I started out on YouTube, and that's also um, my channel's Nurse Jessica Sites. I started out posting videos because I like entertaining people. I like making people laugh. I like making people happy in their job. I feel like. We're so stressed when we're at work. There's so much demand from uh, patients, management, you know, making sure you you take care of your patient appropriately, that nothing happens to them, that you keep them safe, that if we don't laugh a little bit, if we don't cut up a tiny bit, we will all go insane. And I think that that's why when I had the opportunity and I was had a little more time on my hands, I started playing around with it posted a couple of things on YouTube, started doing okay. And people were really receptive to it and they liked it and they laughed. And it made me feel good to make other people laugh that we're going through difficult times because we can all relate to it. It's humorous, you know? I mean, there's always that patient that drives you bonkers and you're just like, you know? And sometimes you got to laugh about it. Or there's always that manager that comes around the corner when you're just sit down to do something bad, you know? And there they are. And you're like, wow, like, where did you come from? You know, and it's, it's all things we can relate to. So you guys go definitely go look her up and you guys, I just want to thank you so much for all of the support that you've given me. Like I said, we're, we're uh, getting ready in the next week or two to hit 500,000 downloads. It's a huge milestone for me. And I, every time I've reached a milestone, I've always thought that I was going to do something special and I never, it just usually comes and goes and I'm just like, well, there went 100,000 and I just don't, I'm like, oh. so this time I was like, I'm going to reach out to some people and try to get some like special people on that I know that my listeners will love. So I have another, I'm just going to like do a little teaser for next week. You guys, we're going to have Nurse Mike from The Simple Nursing. And I know my nursing students are going to know exactly who that is, because if you've ever used YouTube to help study for an exam, you have come across his videos. So he's going to be on next week. So be sure and uh, listen up for that. So I guess we can get started. Let's do it. So th- this news story is kind of, it's sort of uh, funny. I thought it was kind of funny, but there's apparently in Washington State, a couple of women that are going around different porches and stealing Amazon pack- like <laughs> packages. And they decided that it would be a good idea to dress up like nurses and like full on, like not just scrubs, but one of them even has gloves and lanyards with like a badge on 
It's the strangest, most bizarre thing. Maybe they're making a TikTok video at the same time. Who knows? Oh my gosh. Would that not be hilarious if they like jumped back and all of a sudden started dancing? Yeah. Like, uh, mm, 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 I got my package. Uh, uh. Yeah. <laughs> because there are, you know how many houses have these cameras built into like, I feel like everybody has that now. So why would thieves do this anymore? Why? Mm-mm. I mean, you could be spotted anywhere. I mean, the cameras are everywhere. I'm like, I even told my teenagers, I'm like, you can't go egg in house like I used to be able to do back in the day. Not that I did that, people, okay? (laughs) Or uh, toilet paper somebody's house because they're going to have you on camera and you're going to get busted. So it's like, why people think they'd get away with this nowadays? No, I don't know. The cameras are everywhere. They're on the doorbell. They're on the side Mm -hmm. of the house. Just assume you're being videoed everywhere you go and act accordingly. (laughs) That's all I know. Yep. So I don't know. I don't understand the whole dressing up like a nurse thing. Uh, To me, if, because, you know, the article is kind enough to, rather than say nurses are going around, they actually said someone dressed as a nurse. They could have maybe assumed, but. Or maybe they were trying to play like they were a home health nurse. Maybe. That kind of just clicked in my mind. Like maybe it's like I was making a house call and that's Mm -hmm. why I had to walk up to the porch or then, then they could like, if somebody did bust them, they could be like, oh, they didn't answer their door. or Like you had a legitimate reason to be there or... Right. I mean, nursing is, nurses are the most trusted profession. And yes. that's been going on, you know, for decades now. Uh, so maybe they, they felt like people would see someone in scrubs and think, oh, that's someone, you know, innocent not to worry. Whatever they're doing, I'm sure it's fine. But, you know, I do have an entire podcast built around medical professionals who do bad things. So it could definitely be nerve. It's not like I don't tell a story every week about a nurse or a doctor who... It happens. You know, yeah. That's for sure. That's for sure. We're human. Yeah. And as I say each week, we the, the healthcare uh, field is no different than any other field. We're made up of human beings who right. sometimes make really dumb decisions, sometimes make bad choices, sometimes have, are just spontaneous and just have, you know, bursts of anger and do things for whatever reason. Some have mental health issues and some people are just flat out bad, horrible, hurtful, hateful, evil people. Yep. And that's just, that's any industry. It's not just healthcare. And it just so happens I'm a nurse. So I'm kind of focusing on healthcare field. You know, the more you tell this, these stories, it kind of gets the word out there that like this sort of thing goes on. So like it puts it in people's minds to sort of be aware, you know, and be mindful that, that there's not always, it's not always good people. As much right. as you want to think that everybody is golden, there's always bad seeds in anything. I mean, yeah. no matter what the field is or what work you're doing, unfortunately, mm-hmm. there's always those people that, uh, don't have the best intentions and it happens anywhere. And you can't always weed them out. You don't know. How do you know? I mean, they're going to make it, those people are going to slip through the cracks and make it in to the hospital and taking care of patients. And they're going to be, who knows? Some people are doing just great taking care of their patients and then it's just at their home life. They're a wreck. I I think it's publicized so much because medical professionals, we have to take care of people and their lives. So when yeah. you do something malicious and that's reported in the news, it's a big story. But there's there's bad seeds. There's There can be bad people in any industry. But when you get one in a medical profession, it, it can hurt somebody's life. Yeah, It can mess people up pretty bad. So I think that that's why it's such an intriguing topic, you know? Yeah, people kn- know when they see a headline, you know, nurse injects patient with whatever. Right. You're just like, whoa, because you know that could be you. You could yes. be in the hospital or your loved one could be in the hospital and someone could do something like that intentionally. So it's shocking. And you're vulnerable. Those patients mm-hmm. are vulnerable. They Absolutely. They're, they're, they're trusting you. They don't know. They don't know what what's right, what's wrong. And they gravitate towards that. It's like, oh gosh, if somebody were coming to put something in my IV, I'd think it was medicine, but good grief, they could be there to knock me out. Like right. who knows, you know? Exactly. Well, I guess we can get into this bad doctor. We're doing a bad doctor story. I do pick on doctors a lot. And I think the reason is, I don't mean to, it's just that when I'm looking for stories, they do tend to be the more interesting stories and they are easier, I think, maybe to find. Right. So this is actually the story of uh, Dr. Mark Weinberger. 
an ENT in Indiana when all this kind of went down. He grew up in New York. Mm -hmm. He was a middle child. He was born on May 22nd, 1963. He was cum laude graduate of University of Pennsylvania or Penn. Then went to medical school at UCLA, had a grade point average of 3.82 and a merit scholarship. That's that's saying something for medical smart, school. Smart guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He met Michelle Kramer at a club in Chicago. Michelle was 25 at the time, working as a counselor at a hospital, still lived at home with her parents. She'd grown up in the south side of Chicago, blue collar. So she's just sort of, just it comes from a different world than he came from. And she was very much sort of enamored by physicians because not only is he coming kind of from a different world than she's used to, but when she was young, she was hit by a drunk driver and almost lost her leg. And she just that there was a massive impression made on her by the doctors that took care of her and, you know, helped to get her better. And so she just really revered them as heroes. And so when she came across him, at this club, she said, oh, she was just taken by him immediately. He was 36 at the time, and he invited her to dinner. They went to Miami for a weekend, and they just, that kind of start, sparked a, a whole... He showed her all the glitz and the glamour. Mm-hmm. I wonder if when he met her in the club, if he was like, hello, I'm mm-hmm. I'm Dr. Mark Weinberger. Yeah. You know, like, and she probably was captivated, like, doctor? Oh, goodness. Yeah. You know? But that's that, and then he was probably like, "Do you want to come to Miami with me?" And she's like, "Sure, yeah, okay. I was gonna work this weekend, but forget that. I'll head off with you to Miami. Let's go." Oh yeah, I'm sure. She said they laughed the whole flight. She said everybody around them thought they were crazy because they just laughed constantly. They were kind of both into philosophy, and she was studying neuroscience and psychology. So they kind of had some nerdy scientific sort of books in common. And he was surprised by that because he wasn't used to, according to him, he wasn't used to a lot of pretty girls, I guess, maybe being able to go back and forth with him in a a more intellectual manner. Although I feel like that's not very fair, (laughs) but you know, whatever. He said, quote, he said, I meet a lot of pretty girls who are pretty vapid, but you are a formidable foe. What the just heck like, does that mean? <laughs> he sounds like a real piece of work. <laughs> <laughs> sounds wonderful. Yeah, scoop me up, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> so they they really hit it off. They met each other's parents. She moved in pretty quickly. She said he wanted her to quit her job. So she quit her job. And poor thing. Pretty, I poor, know. That poor little lamb. It's just, it's just so sad. Yeah. Quit your She's, job and tour with me everywhere in Miami mm-hmm. and let's have a hot time. Right. Yeah. And spend your day entertaining yourself by preparing for his arrival home for, from work. So her favorite activity was dressing up for him as a sexy librarian. So she would spend the day getting ready for him to come home from work. Tina, can you imagine if that was your day? That's all you had to do? Listen, when you wake up today, you just need to be a slutty librarian, okay? You just, whatever you got to do, okay? You might have to Google it or you might have to go to the the stores, but you just make that happen and that's your plan for the day. I'd be like, okay, okay, Mark, I'll be your formidable foe. That's all you have to do when you have an endless bank account, apparently. I always feel like when I hear things like this in in a story, I'm always like, okay, I can kind of, my senses start tingling. Like I can feel him being controlling. And that's what I think, you know. So he's very thrilled with this whole arrangement, but she does start to feel like she's not really being fulfilled. She didn't feel like she had anything of her own. She said her father was very much a, a go-getter and she was her uh, her father's daughter and she had to do something. So she started studying to get her PhD in psychology. So after, so this is all going on. They take romantic trips to Greece, Italy. They, um, of course, there's a wedding proposal. He bends down on one knee within a year and they, uh, this was in Rome that this happened And she said that she uh, looked at the ring and she said she just saw her whole future reflected in the ring. So that's, you know. It's like a story tell. Yeah. Story tale. Like it's just amazing. 
Yeah. I've never, just, been, I've never been to Rome. I want to go. You can't really write a fairy tale any better than this. No, I mean, it sounds it's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. So she said marriage, kids, grandkids. It was like the fairy tales that her parents had read to her as a child. That's what she was kind of thinking. And then they get on a horse-drawn carriage and they got married at the Chicago Botanic Garden. So after they married, Michelle had just begun a graduate program there at Chicago School of Professional Psychology when her father died of lung cancer. So kind of hit a little bit of a bump in the road, you know, in the the beginning of their marriage. Mm -hmm. And she was obviously consumed with grief. She, you know, as, as she said about her father and kind of being like him, it sounds like she was very close to him. And so it was really hard on her. But she felt like he didn't really empathize with her during this time. And he was more kind of focused on himself and worried about how it was going to impact their relationship. And, you know, they had been having all this fun, traveling around and just having a blast. And he's worried like, oh, you're going to be sad now. It's going to and mess now everything they, up. Now they actually have to deal with real life. They actually have to deal with something that could happen to anybody, you know? Mm-hmm. So this glitz and glamour has come to a halt because now she's got sad feelings and she's not putting on the sexy librarian outfit because she's crying and he and Mark wasn't having it sounds like he's just he's kind of bummed about it yeah which to me sounds not very cool this is where the story turns for me here a little bit yeah it definitely starts to turn a little dark here yeah she rationalized his behavior saying that she always just a typical self-centered guy the thing my my thing is I mean we all are fools in love but the thing is, if you are rationalizing someone's behavior, that they're the typical self-centered person. Yeah, what does that mean? I don't think that that's true. If someone's acting like that, it it's because either they're really self-centered and they're being, you know, that that's not good. They shouldn't be acting that way. Or they don't care about you and they see you as an object that that is there to make them happy and they're not really about you and right. they don't really care about you. So maybe think about that if you ever find yourself rationalizing behavior like that. Yeah. And then her mom died right after that, which is just like adding, you know, another layer. She probably of, is just starting to get over the mm-hmm. feelings for her dad and then boom, here we go again, you know. And yeah, and you can just imagine how sad and lonely, you know, she must have been feeling when your parents pass away, you it's sort of your mortality sort of like hits you in the face like, oh, this is not forever. You know, you know, you're going to die at some point, but you just sort of keep living your life. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, someone like that, that significant dies in your life. And it really hits. No, it home. truly makes an impact on your life. And I speak from experience it it does it makes you feel like we've only got one one life to live like um this could end in a in a second in a second it could be over so you almost start feeling like i need to live for the moment like this is you you know you never know it's it definitely changes you as a person to your core that's a very rough thing and for him to not be supportive of that i don't like him I know. I'm not I'm not a fan. No. They muddled through though and tried to reignite their relationship by having a second wedding ceremony, which is to me I mean to me that's a little bit odd. You haven't you've you know, like been married like I don't know, like five years or something like that. And you already um, need to have a second like a rekindling, like Yeah. Isn't that something people do like twenty five years? Like Right. I, that's a little odd, but yeah, I think it's cool when people do that. Um, Absolutely. But I, I just, it seems like, wow, if this is necessary to sort of, you know, it's one thing if you're doing it because like, you know, you want to reaffirm and you want to, you want to say, I would marry you all over again, that sort of thing. But if you're doing it because you're trying to reignite, oh, I don't know if that's going to do it. Um, He's probably so, thinking, how do I get the sexy librarian back? Yeah. Oh, let's, let's renew our wedding vows. That, that. Clearly, she'll have to bring that outfit to her honeymoon. <laughs> Which is just, you know, it's like, it's, he just seemed like he was constantly looking for anything that he could do that would, would be a distraction, that's fun. Yes, that's yes. Just. That will re-engage her to think of nothing but him. Right. It, but we'll just, 
hone her back in that he is the central focus and narcissist and Mm -hmm. that's whatever he had to do that was going to be it. It's what it's that's the feeling that I'm getting, you know. So he had opened up his own clinic in a little town called Merrillville, Indiana, and it's just about 30 minutes outside of Chicago. And so I guess sort of the northern part of Indiana, if I'm remembering my U.S. geography correctly. And so his business really started taking off because the area was a very blue-collar area, and there was a lot of pollution from a lot of the factories in the area. So a lot of people in that town had sinus problems. And so he's an ENT, he opens up a clinic, and this working-class population had good health insurance, so he took any health insurance that was out there. So it was just a good setup for him to be able to have a, a thriving practice. Right. So he and Michelle entered a life, spent the next couple of years, you know, traveling, private jets, bought a condo in Chicago, property in the Bahamas. I mean, we would take the Concord to London. I don't think the Concord is the thing anymore, right? Did they, they shut that down? I have no I, idea. That's that, isn't I that don't know. I don't, I don't ride the Concorde, so I, I don't know. I don't follow the Concorde. <laughs> the last time I tried to get on one, they said they they didn't have it anymore. Yeah, last week they they was shut down due to the coronavirus. So I, I don't know. But, you know, a couple months ago I rode on it. It was fine, but... I think I remember that that was like the really fast. I always say things, and I said this when I was recording um, with Mike yesterday, but I always say this, like I start talking off the top of my head and say stupid stuff all the time on this podcast. Like I'll just start randomly talking about stuff that I don't know anything about, but I think I do, and I say wrong things, and then people send me emails. I'd be like the, so con- the Concord? Yeah, where's where's that? that- <laughs> and then people are like, that, Did you even do your research? Is that in the jungles of Africa? Where is the Concord? I have no clue. But you oh, know what? Gosh. Probably, if we're saying this, probably most people listening have no clue either. So I, right. think, I think we're okay. Y'all just don't Google it, okay? Just assume I'm right. <laughs> yeah. The Give Concord, me the benefit of the doubt. It's over there in Europe somewhere, and they're, yeah. con- they're concording it, okay? There you go. Exactly. But I mean, they would go to the Cannes Film Film Festival. I am so jealous of this. I want to go to that. That is something something I've always wanted to do. I think it'd be amazing. Um, It sounds wonderful. Partying with celebrities. They bought an 80-foot yacht in Europe. Okay. I just want to say, like, my husband's a physician, and we don't have money like that, okay? So I don't know. It's already shady in my mind, okay? Mm -hmm. Because- my husband ain't taking me on the Concord. We don't have a yacht. All of this is a struggle. So I, where is he getting all this money from? Unless his parents are loaded or he's doing something uh, inappropriate, which may, may come out here in a minute, um, something ain't right. Yeah, something is definitely fishy for sure. It's, uh, I mean, doctors, yeah, they, they, they do make, money, make a lot of money. like that. Yeah, I mean, they do. They... And and we've t- I've talked about this many times on this podcast before too that you know we doctors should make a lot of money after they had to spend ten freaking years in school, they've had a lot of them had had to go into debt hundreds of thousands of dollars. So yes. that's the way it should be. This lifestyle does seem uh, over a, the top. It a, definitely a, does a bit. Of, unless he's putting himself in debt, I, I who knows you know which people do. I mean yeah. that's definitely something people do. Because I will She's, tell you for my husband. As soon as they know you're a physician, they'll give you a credit line of whatever you want. Like oh, it's dear. like, oh yeah. It and unless you're of sound mind and you know that this is above your means, like they they know your doctor, they see your income, they'll you, whatever you want. Like here's your credit line, have at it. So he probably could make it happen, but I don't know if he had the funds to do it or if he did. Like I was saying, something something weird is going on. Yeah, definitely. It definitely feels like it. She even said that she was trying to process the the whole issue of wealth that, you know, it was all fun, glamorous, it was fabulous. She said that she came from the land of unions, you know, in that, that working class area. Mm-hmm. And suddenly she has maids in maid uniforms, uh, you know, uniformed maids at their Where's home. Where's mine? Where, do you have a maid in your I housing? definitely do not. Don't either. No. What the uh, heck? She, they have drivers, um, 
I have Uber. I mean, I can I can, I can call an Uber anytime I want. To. <laughs> I, I, if I needed a DD, I could I could have my eighteen year old daughter drive me around, maybe. But um, <laughs> I, I don't have a, a, a driver either. What? Where did where did we go wrong, Tina? What did we do wrong? I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> I mean, I got on the wrong boat somewhere. <laughs> I got to go back to the port. <laughs> so she they had a massage therapist. They had she said sheets with thread counts of like a million. <laughs> so, I mean. Where do you get that? If it's not a Target, I can't find it. I don't, where, where do you order these at? I don't know. I was just looking at sheets at Target the other day, and I think the highest thread count they have is like 700, which are pretty nice sheets, actually. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't think I've seen anything over that. I mean, if you get to like a thousand, you might have to go to like Dillard's or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but aside from that, I, I don't know. Somebody send us a link. Let us know where these expensive sheets are located. We'd yeah, like we to get just, your sheets. <laughs> we just want to. We just want to peruse it. We won't buy it, but we just want to yeah. see where you find it. Maybe it's on the Concord. And what's the difference? <laughs> I mean, if if you've really used sheets with a thousand or fifteen hundred thread count or whatever versus seven hundred, eight hundred, what is it really? Could there really be that much of a difference? Because they are. There is obviously a difference between like two hundred. 300 thread count and like seven or 800. There's no doubt about that. They're very, you know, thick there and is, heavy. But my toddlers are urinating on mine. So what, <laughs> what, dif- what difference does it make? I mean, exactly. I, might, I might as well just throw like uh, some hospital pads on the bed and call it a day. Yes, that works. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that wasn't happening for Michelle. Well, she even said, it kind of cracked me up, but she said, one night when we were flying into Chicago on a private jet, I looked down and saw all the little blue collar homes where I grew up. I was trying to find meaning in all this. I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. Mm. Okay. But like, like almost like she feels guilty kind of, or? I, I don't doubt it. You know, I mean, I, I, I could imagine it's not, it, I think that you could still enjoy that kind of lifestyle and enjoy like how amazing it would be to be able to be on a private jet or to be able to go over to the Cannes Film, Film Festival yeah. and still look back on your, on the, all of the people that you grew up around, all the people that still live around, you know, the neighborhood and kind of feel a little, yeah, maybe feel a little guilty that they aren't getting to experience it. Like maybe. you're one, you're one of the few that got out of it. You're one of the few that isn't still working a 60 hour a week and, you know, having to grind it and can barely pay your bills. Like maybe that's where she was coming from. Like, this is odd to me. Like, how did I get here? You know? Right. Like, why did I deserve it versus someone else? Oh yeah, definitely. So in in the spring of 2004, she got pregnant and then five months later she had a miscarriage. So Mm -hmm. that was definitely. um, Five months is kind of late for a miscarriage. Like that's hard. Heart-wrenching, absolutely. They kind of, at that point, started having some arguments. Things got a little rough there for a while with their relationship. So he suggested traveling with friends to Greece to celebrate her 30th birthday. And so she's kind of thinking, oh, maybe things are get, oh, will get better. You know, we're going to go kind of like old times. We're <laughs> fly over to Greece, <laughs> you know, maybe say our wedding vows again. Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> Why not? I mean... What other country can they explore? Maybe, I know. maybe every year they just go to a whole other continent. I don't know. That might make <laughs> things better. They'll just discover a whole brand new continent that doesn't even, that we didn't even know existed. Exactly. They're going to go to the moon next month. <laughs> well, that yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all. <laughs> so on their first night together in Greece in September of 2004, they had dinner in a little cafe overlooking the a shimmering harbor and just kind of thinking about the week. And I kind of think like whenever <laughs> whenever we go on vacation, on our little vacations that is nowhere near like Greece or something, but that's kind of what we do. Like, you know, we kind of go out to dinner like that first night and be like, okay, we're going to do this. And we're going to do this, you know, kind of planning the week out. So I can see this. I really yeah. can kind of picture it. So they're going to, obviously they have friends that have gone with them. They're going to have a birthday celebration with them. They're going to take a trip to Turkey during that week. And so it all seemed like, oh, this is wonderful. Maybe things are, you know, kind of looking up and she was kind of excited and hopeful. The next day, he was gone. So she wakes up, she looks over, he's not there. And she's hmm. like, um, okay. At first she thought she, he had gone for a jog. Then enough time went by that she was like, uh, okay, 
this is strange. He would have been back by now. So she goes and asks the captain of the yacht. And at first he didn't want to tell her what was going on. And then he of the yacht. Grinned. They're on a yacht now. Yeah. Then he, I guess it's the 80 foot, is it the 80 foot yacht? I don't know. Yeah, it's probably um, a bigger one. They probably rented one in, in Greece. It's probably, probably a 90 foot yacht now. Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. So she will, she loses her mind and he says, okay, obviously you're going to, you're, you're having a heart attack here. I, I, I'll i tell you. And he's kind of grinning. He's like, don't worry. He has flown to Paris for the day. He's going to get you a birthday present. He will be back before sundown. So she's like, okay, that actually sounds like something he might do. So she was trying not to worry about it too much. Okay. Sundown came and went and he never showed up. He had completely vanished. Now, you know, a grown man, a wealthy man in the, the situation goes missing like this, and it does, news kind of travels fast. And so she called Mark's family. She called you know, his coworkers, his colleagues. So she called the American embassy in Greece. No one had heard from him. So she's now in a situation where she's in a foreign country. Right. Her husband had control of all the finances. She didn't even have a checkbook. She did not have any access to money other than what he gave her. Mm. And she had to get off the island. So somehow she gets off the island. She's, she's able to get home. And she gets a call from the private jet company um, that she and Mark had used to fly to Greece. So Mark apparently was not aware that she had flown back to the U.S. and asked the company to tell her that she could use his account to fly from Greece to Paris and then home. Okay. So she's thinking, oh, he's alive. You know, like, I mean, she doesn't know. Is he alive? Is he like, right. did something happen to him? So if if he's somehow sending a message that she should use the private jet to get home, but it's it's kind of weird that the message came in after she had made it home without you know, it's right. it's a little sketchy. So it's right. like, but she took this as a sign that he's in trouble and needed her. And she took it like, okay, if he's sending this message after I got home, this is a, it's like a cryptic message to me saying. I'm in trouble that, in Paris. Get to Paris. Maybe? Yeah. Fly to Paris and meet me there. So she, <laughs> she flew to France. Is this not, I mean, like, what do you do? You just like show up? I mean, where do you go in France? You just go to France. You go and eat some French fries and hope he shows up at the diner? What French fries? I, know. I, I don't know. what. Where, where would she go? I, I mean, I'm sure she was grasping at straws. So she probably I mean, like. To go to France, I, I just feel like that was so. Maybe bizarre. she went to the jewelry store. She was hoping he was there with her gift. With and, her gift. Yeah, yeah. No kidding. So. She goes to a hotel that, so when she got home, she kind of found some papers that had some information on it about like that were kind of like were shredded and she sort of put them together and she, there was some information about a hotel in Paris and she was like, oh, maybe he's there. I mean, she is like straight up private investigator here. And th that's where she went. She goes to this hotel in Paris, hoping that by some weird, you know, strange, bizarre coincidence or that she's able to put this riddle together mm -hmm. correctly, that he's there. And actually, the front desk clerk did recognize his photo and said that he was there and that he had left just the day before. So, I mean, I'm like, I felt so bad for her when I read this because I was like, oh, wow. Because I, you know, you don't know, like, is he really there? Is somebody like messing with her, you know? Right. And then she goes, and when the front desk clerk actually says he was there, then, uh, oh, okay, well, I, he was there. But then she missed him by day. That would that mm. would stink. Yeah. It's like he was trying to get me here to help yeah. him or whatever was going on, and I didn't make it here fast enough, and he's gone. Yeah. She went all through the clubs and cafes that they had been to before, trying to just, like, she was showing his picture to everyone, and people were kind of laughing at her. Yes, they they thought she was crazy, you know, and she did not find him. She was not able to find him. So the thing is, she got back home, and she doesn't know what to do. When, during, and, and you know, think about this, like, he he left the country, but it's not like 
it doesn't appear as as though he's in danger because there's evidence that he's alive. Right. And he has made no effort whatsoever to contact her. So it doesn't, it just looks as though he just left. And or maybe so he was the, trying to avoid her or. Yeah. Right. And so the authorities don't really have a reason to try to track him down. It's like mm-hmm. not going to be on the top of their list of priorities. But come to find out, according to the office workers at his clinic, there was, before he went missing, there had been a group of men with like thick European accents that came into the clinic in that summer of 2004. And they were really, like the employees were really confused. They were like, what is going on? This is bizarre. They, you know, had never really seen men like this before. You know, this, you can imagine this little, this little town. And it's sort of theorized that the men were diamond dealers from New York. And mm-hmm. they're thinking that possibly he was purchasing diamonds that I guess he would the theory is that he would take them over to Europe and be able to sell them mm. for, you know, for money there. They apparently had briefcases, and they think that that's, that's what happened there in, in the clinic. Around that same time, he decided to take over the clinic's bookkeeping and supposedly siphon two, $2 million from the business. Wow. And this is all sort of like, you know, the the employees that work there. Trying to piece things together. Yeah. Yeah. Hearsay, like, yeah. Right. There were boxes that were being delivered. And you can imagine the, the, the workers just being like, you know, if you think about like, he's the doctor. The name of this clinic was like the Weinberger Clinic or something like nose, right? ENT or what? So he owns this clinic, and so they, what are they going to do? But this bizarre behavior starts happening, and they're just kind of like, "What the heck?" These boxes start being delivered, like thirty or forty boxes. They didn't open them, but they could tell. I I wonder if he told them, "I'm getting these deliveries. Just let them be. Put them in a room." Like, Mm -hmm. because otherwise, any employee, like if you get a package and you're at work, you open it, you try to put it away, you do your job. So he must have had some kind of uh, conversation with them at some point, like just put these in the separate room and let them be. I would. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, this is this has nothing to do with the business. This is my personal stuff. Right, right. Um, But they could tell from the outside labels that they contained camping gear. So Mm. the thing is, his. His the office workers were like, this is not someone who is going to be camping. He's going to be staying at the ritziest hotels and, you know, obviously 80-foot yachts. So going camping is not something that you would expect him to do. So right. all this camping gear coming along, it's just not really consistent with who they know him to be. Right. It's bizarre. Yeah. So they keep it all in this room that the employees started calling the scary room. <laughs> So there was th- there were three portable shower kits, a waterproof wallet, a passport holder, a set of plates, cups, and cutlery, two small compasses, a portable vinyl sink, a portable headlight. So not sure why a, this is so scary, but mm, a five language translator, a pocket weather tracker, a Garmin color map navigator with European software, which this is cracking me up because I'm like, this is glamping. Okay. This is not camping. Right, right. I mean, come on. Right. He's got like every <laughs> fix and thing you could possibly need to go camping. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So meanwhile, back at the ranch. <laughs> What was really going on with Dr. Weinberger? What is causing all of this bizarre behavior? Why? Because we can sort of tell what's, what's and deduce what's going on here. He's buying camping gear. He's needing, you know, language translators. He's acting very strangely. Uh, and then all of a sudden he goes missing in Europe. And we know that he's alive because he's communicating uh, or he's some somehow communicating or people are seeing him. So... What's going on? Well, right. basically, he, in his private practice, was diagnosing pretty much all of his patients. Like, the majority of his patients, he's diagnosing with the same condition and recommending surgery for almost everyone. They all, he, they all needed it. Everybody. Every single person. He, His dad loaned him, like, $2 million or something, a, like a couple million dollars. Okay, to so here purchase. we go. We're getting into where he got the money to begin with, daddy. Yeah, his family actually, they were in some sort of like meat packing 
industry or something. So he came his, from a little bit of wealth, it sounds like. He definitely came from, he was wanting to make his own for sure because, right, right. Uh, because I mean, his dad loaned him the money. His dad didn't just, you know, just like, here, here's your, here's a CAT scan for Christmas, you know. Right. But he had his own CT scanner right there in the office. So he would scan the patients, look at the results. That or, had or, not, no, or not look at them. Or yeah, whatever. Eh, whatever. I mean, who needs... Who needs to look? He yeah, can tell, we, we right? shove you through the scanner. Yeah, you got sinus problems. Yes. <laughs> and he would recommend surgery every single time. He would say the same thing. You have a deviated septum and you have polyps. So you need to go in there and clean all that up and open up your sinuses and it's going to fix everything. Mm. Well, this, as you can imagine, this is not good for a lot of people. And, it, and it's... It's one thing to say, well, he was giving unnecessary, doing unnecessary surgeries for people. That's bad enough. Sinus surgery. I've had sinus surgery before. And honestly, I questioned afterwards whether it was not some kind of weird thing that I didn't really need to have done. Right. Same thing. I was having headaches and I felt like I was having like congestion and stuff. And then there's this weird thing. And they basically run this thing up your nose into your sinuses and clean clean you out or inflate a balloon and try to expand your sinuses. And it's just weird stuff that they do. I don't know. I'm just saying it it seemed a little odd and I don't really think it worked. Well, and these people are probably uncomfortable and in pain and they're just like, okay, let's yes. give it a try, right? And you'll do anything when you're, especially if it's causing headaches and you're just miserable, you'll do anything. And this guy, if you think about his credentials, look where he came from. So it's not just that there's unnecessary surgeries being done. Right. These people are coming to him with something wrong with them. And then he's not addressing mm-hmm. what's really wrong with them. And that is really bad and actually fatal for one person in particular. Phyllis Barnes was 47 years old. Mm-hmm. She was employed helping recently laid off steelworkers find new jobs She went to see Dr. Weinberger because she had a cough for several months and Mm -hmm. sometimes was spitting out blood and now was having problems breathing. I mean, I am not an ENT. Mm -hmm. I'm a nurse, you know, work at a hospital. And I immediately can tell you that if someone said they've had a cough for several months, coughing up blood and having problems breathing, oh my gosh. Yeah. So something deep is going on. Something more than... uh, Sinus polyps, I would assume. Losing weight because it was hard for her to swallow. She was a smoker. She had been to, now, and this is concerning too, but she'd been to a physician assistant and a doctor who thought the problem might be asthma or allergies. They suggested that she go see Dr. Weinberger, so she did. And they said, you know, maybe it's sinus-related. So he shoved her through the CT scanner. And you've got and polyps. We need to deviated We need to rotor, rotor rooter you, and that's going to fix it. Yes. So she had surgery the following month, removed the excess polyps that were supposedly there, mm-hmm. and so that was supposed to help her breathe more easily. It didn't work. She continued to have a lot of difficulty breathing. She went back to see him and told he told her just relax, give the surgery time to work. But her condition never improved. Mm. And she started thinking maybe she had pneumonia. So she went back to him. And he said to her, I don't treat pneumonia. So go to an emergency room. She said it felt like someone was hanging her by a rope. Mm. Poor thing. Yeah. It's awful. Well, on December 7th, 2001, she went to another doctor. This doctor, Dr. Hahn, was also an ENT throat surgeon. And he immediately saw how sick she was. Mm -hmm. And based on the sound of her breathing alone, which I'm sure was probably Strider at this point, made the correct diagnosis. She did not have a sinus problem. She had throat cancer. According to legal documents, Weinberger had not even performed a throat exam on her during her initial visit. He just ordered the CT of her sinuses only. So he didn't do, you know, the complete Mm -hmm. head, thorax, you know, the whole nine yards, which why wouldn't, you're an ENT, there is a T in there too. I don't know. It's just, I don't get it. Right. It should be something he should have covered. He should have caught that. Yeah. I I just, it's so, so disheartening. So this ended up in litigation and she had to be recorded in a deposition. And this is why we got to see her in in the, in the show. Mm -hmm. And her lawyers said that he saw 
more than 100 patients a day. Wow. How do you do that? He would spend an average of three minutes with each of them. So that's why her lawyers are saying that's the reason that he missed the diagnosis because who in the world, you know, you're just seeing patient after patient after patient after patient, three minutes. You don't have time to, you know, really, truly, you know, feel of someone's throat or no, he's not. He's not assessing those people at all. No. He probably goes in with a script. We've seen your CT scan and you've got polyps and we're going to need to go in there and remove those and open up your passages and your insurance is approving it. And we're going to set you for a surgery date. Yeah. And he probably just thinks, well, you're, you're a smoker. You've got a smoker's cough. You know, that's not uncommon for a smoker to have a cough and I can do the surgery. It's, it's, it's surgery, but it's still not too invasive. Maybe he's somehow justifying doing it. He would take on as many as 120 new patients a month. His one document likened his practice to an assembly line. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. So three months after her first visit to Dr. Weinberger, Dr. Hahn said that the tumor inside her larynx was easily visible upon examination. Yeah. So also there were her lymph nodes were enlarged in her neck and she had two firm masses on the left side of her neck, which were consistent with cancer. So the thing is, yes, she had throat cancer. How long she would have lived if he had diagnosed her right away, if somebody had caught this when she initially went? I mean, we don't know that. It, it may have been inevitable that she would die from this at some point. Or but it, well, she could have maybe extended her time or had more time, been able to prepare and had a little bit more quality of life, I would assume. So that was, seems like that was stolen from her. Exactly. That's what I I think it really took away from her. Even if it took one day away from her to be able to spend with her family, one more birthday, one more anything. So she did file the lawsuit in 2002. And it seemed like what's really strange is you would think that a, a a patient like this filing a lawsuit against him mm-hmm. would kind of straighten him up and because like, oh, they're going to be looking at my my records. They're going to be looking at all, right. of, all of my patients. Right. I and it to- didn't really seem to deter all of these procedures that he was doing. It actually, a new he opened a new clinic and it seemed like the, it, inc- it, in- it had the opposite effect. It was actually increasing and got worse. So he performed hundreds of sinus surgeries that were really unnecessary. And this is, you know, according to the trial attorneys and interviews that were done. Mm-hmm. And some of the physicians around him, you know, you immediately, red flags were going off at the beginning of this when we were talking about the lavish lifestyle and 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 that sort of thing. And right. so you know, as the wife of a, of a physician, that that's not necessarily going along with the lifestyle that it should have been. Like that something is definitely off and that red flag went up immediately. There were doctors all around him that were thinking the same thing. They right. were like, "What? what's he doing? Right. Yeah. I, can, can you sign me up for that practice? Because yeah. mine's not functioning like that. Sounds like something like Jennifer Lopez would be doing. Like, I mean, it's just a little bit a little crazy. So then there was another patient, William Boyer. And this is, they're, they're, these are two patients that I just sort of uh, picked out of something like 350. Wow. <laughs> this is, right. That's crazy. But this one, uh, another patient, William Boyer, he said that Dr. Weinberger showed him a picture of the inside of his sinuses mm-hmm. and it showed these polyps that were really inflamed and had pus uh, coming out of them. And it was just, and he was like, whoa, yeah, definitely do the surgery. Right. And then found out later that that was not actually a, a picture of his sinuses. That's I mean, great. that is so disgusting. I can't even. Sounds like the screenshot he used for everybody. Right. He probably did. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Like he probably didn't even look at anything or if he did, he glanced at it and didn't pay attention and found the uh, image of something that looks the most horrendous and was like, this is going to sell them to sign up. And he probably thought he had a gold mine and that it was never going to be discovered because, you know, you're, it's a simple surgery. You're cleaning out sinuses. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's who am I hurting? Yeah. Who am I really hurting here? You know, he feel. I think he felt like it was benign enough. Now, in the case of William Boyer, the one that he showed in like the fake picture, mm-hmm. he actually had a heart arrhythmia uh, condition. Oh gosh! So the, the surgery itself, they think that it's it's possible that it kind of exacerbated his oh, heart uh, condition. So the thing is, 
yeah, it may seem like a benign surgery, but things can go wrong. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. You know? Yeah. So what had happened when he left and when, you know, he went over to Europe with his wife and then all of a sudden disappeared. He pretty much went off to live in the wilderness in Switzerland. He met a woman who was a trans transgender woman. They had a very serious relationship to the point that they even talked about adopting children. Transgender woman, does that mean there was a man trying to become a woman, correct? Yes. Yes. And okay. I'm just making sure I'm following properly. Yes. She transitioned. She transitioned to a woman. Yes. And she became, he was her first boyfriend after becoming a woman. Okay. Okay. I'm following here. Yeah. They had a very serious relationship. But obviously they couldn't have children. Right. So they talked about adopting. And and she even said that it would be strange because he would... you know, like stay in the tent a lot, like out, you know, out in the wilderness and talk about, hey, would he would ask her, you know, would you want to just like disappear and and live in the wilderness? Like he would talk about going way up into the mountains and he was and trying to hide. Him. He was trying to hide. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He he felt the heat coming in. I'm sure he was probably thinking they're going to close in on me at some point. There's no way I can keep this up, you know. Right. Well, in fact, what happened is his new girlfriend at some point they, of course, they keep putting out information about him once these lawsuits start. You know, the, the police weren't really looking for him too right. heavily at first, but whenever one of these lawsuits are really going, getting, going strong, they start kind of putting more uh, information out there. And that show that has that John Wall show, America's Most Wanted, right. di- they did an episode with him on there. And then one of her, like his girlfriend's friends or relatives saw him on television and was like, uh, <laughs> no, this is, he is not who you think he is. Right. And of course, then she Googles him and finds, you know, out who he really is and gives him up. So that's, that's his, how that was got. his undoing is <laughs> he t- had to get into a, another relationship. Wow. So they did capture him and arrested him. He was extradited to the United States in 2011. He managed to elude them for five years. And, um, of course, they they had him held without bond (laughs) because, I mean, it's not like he's going to, he couldn't possibly convince anyone that he wasn't a flight risk, right? Right, yeah. So he was there in Chicago for a while, and he actually did five years in prison Mm -hmm. and then was released in for some reason, he was released into a halfway house in Florida. I don't know if he was, it's not, you know, they transfer prisoners all the time, like across state lines or like for cr- overcrowding and stuff. Yeah. So maybe they, but he was released in Florida in 2014. And there were many lawsuits uh, against him, millions of dollars that uh, was awarded in these lawsuits. But I mean, where are they going to get the money? Even his own dad it's not going to get the $2 million back that he loaned him. So. <gasps> what a shocker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So that's the story of Dr. Mark Weinberger, our ENT, who is still out there today, to this day. I don't I want, I couldn't find any more information about him after he like He probably lives down the street from me. He probably does. Probably in my neighborhood. I might <laughs> need to look him up. So I guess we can talk about our good doctor because there are good doctors in the world. Yay. Most of them are wonderful. But I thought it would be good to talk about Dr. Fauci because, you know, yes, it's COVID-related. I can't find anything that's not COVID-related. But I thought maybe we could talk. I love him. Like Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is the infectious disease doctor, who is the director for the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And he's on the task force, of course, for COVID, the COVID task force. Yes, and I'm just so impressed with his poise. And he just seems to be such a classy guy. I agree. And holds himself so well. And is very consistent. I feel like he, you know, if there's any kind of misinformation or something he disagrees with, he always handles it very well. And he never says he agrees with something that you know he doesn't agree with. And I, I just I just admire his integrity so much. So I thought, hey, what did, who was Dr. Fauci before? Before all of this, yeah before he was thrust into the spotlight with all of this this stuff. And there's actually an NPR article 
that addresses that. Talks about, you know, long before COVID-19, he changed medicine in America forever. And when I read this, I was like, oh my gosh, he did a lot of really amazing things. And there's a reason why he is in the position that he is in, for sure. He's a smart guy. He is a very smart guy. And he he's really made a difference in the world for people. He, uh, there's one person said he's always taken an open-minded approach to the problems that he's faced. He's never been one, even in the early days, to say, this is how we do it. And we're never going to do it a different way, which I admire that as well. Because it's so sometimes it's so hard for people to do things a different way than they've always done it. And sometimes egos can get in the way and don't want to consider something could be done better, you know? Yeah, he seems very level-headed. Like he, he's willing to take criticism. He's also willing to take opinions. Like he seems like a very calm, well-rounded guy. So, I mean, that's what I've gathered from, because he's had a lot of pressure on him lately. Oh man, I know. I mean, if any, if anybody's going to crack, they'd be cracking right now. So, and he's, it's true. he seems like he's, really well poised, very factual and always holding it together. So yeah, he's definitely holding up under pressure so far. Yeah. This article says that in the 1980s, during the height of the AIDS epidemic, he worked with activists to amend the way the government handled clinical drug trials. Mm-hmm. And the policy shifted the increase in number of patients who had, who had access to experimental HIV and AIDS treatments, which saved countless lives. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, because at that time there was not any cure. There, oh, there's not a cure necessarily, but there is definitely treatment now that can, you know. Oh, it's gone. Th- th- the the uh, instead of it being seen as a death sentence, for lack of a better term, now it's seen as a virus that is treatable and sustainable. I mean, yeah. it's not a cure for it, but you can live with it. Like you can have some. Um, longevity of life. And from what I understand, like a lot of these antiviral drugs that they give for um, HIV, it halts the virus. And from what I understand, most people, if they do end up passing away from it, it's from um, heart irregularities. It's from, because a lot of these antiviral medications have a a huge impact on your cardiovascular system. So instead of passing away from the virus itself, um, it's, if they do, it's a side effect from some of these medications. Um, so it's come a long way for sure. Absolutely. You know, at, the, at that time, you can imagine someone who has been diagnosed just feeling helpless. And what right. he was wanting to do is to say, let's get, let's get this out there. Let's, let's give people the option. And the article says this new system or the AIDS treatment basically forced people to realize that you can't run drug trials and decide what to do with patients without ever consulting the patients. Right. I mean, imagine that. And they (laughs) said that they thought it changed medicine in America forever. And the article says he continues to be forward thinking in his approach to COVID-19, says he wants to make a difference. He sees his job as marshalling evidence and presenting it to the people who need to know what he's talking about. I think that's just... That's who we need in that position. Yes. Well, Jessica, thank you so, so much for coming on. Thanks for inviting me. It was pretty cool. I was excited that you messaged me. I responded right away. I was like, sure, I like to talk. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Let's do it. Yeah. And so they can find you on Facebook. You, you think is kind of the best place for them to... I, I would, I'm not going to lie. I would love to grow my YouTube channel more. So I, dive into both of them. Um at Nurse Jessica Sites on Facebook or YouTube, type in Nurse Jessica Sites and you'll find me too. You can find all my funny videos on both those channels. And I actually run a lot of groups too on, on Facebook. I'm going to give some little shout outs to Nurses oh. with Cards that I'm an administrator for. Also admin and nursing memes only. And yeah, suit really big nursing groups on Facebook that uh, I admin with a couple other amazing women and, and some guys too. So follow me on any of it. I don't, I'd be just be blessed to have anybody partake in any of it. I hope to keep making people laugh. And it's Jessica Sites. It's J-E-S-S-I-C-A and the last name is S-I-T-E-S. Yes. So. Yep. God, your voice sounds like butter. You know that? Has anybody told you that? <laughs> it does. Oh, thank when you. When I was listening to your podcast, I'm like, she sounds like butter. Like you sound Aww. like somebody that'd be like, I'm on the dub 101.5. <laughs> yes. Next, we're going to be playing smooth jazz from Tina. <laughs> Maybe I should go in. Maybe I should get out of nursing and go into the radio. I don't know. You radio. do. Like you, I, as soon as I heard it, I was like, 
dang, that's a podcast voice. Like it's, you have a good <laughs> voice. Like it's very smooth. It's engaging. So thank you. You're welcome. So hopefully we'll do another one. Oh, I hope so. You're definitely welcome anytime. I'd love to have you back. We'll have, well, we're going to do another one. We already planned it, didn't we? Yeah. Just invite me. Let me know the day. Awesome. Well, you guys know you can find me at goodnursebadnurse.com or GNB and podcast on Facebook or goodnursebadnurse on Instagram. And, you know, I love to hear from you. I love when you send me your, your emails of encouragement or stories. I love hearing your stories. If you got any hometown stories, I need them. I love when you guys send me these. They're, they're awesome. And I also want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. <laughs>